2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall broadcasting remotely. It's the beginning of a very busy news week. Tomorrow, Secretary of the State Denise Merrill joins us on Election Day. And of course, we want to hear from you, too, especially if you're voting in person. That's tomorrow. Now, we know Connecticut is a solidly blue state when it comes to national elections. A majority of Connecticut voters have chosen Democrats in the last seven presidential races. But we can't forget half of the towns in our state voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Liz Normand is a local voter who supports Trump.
0: I mean, Joe Biden is a nice guy and Trump isn't. However, if you look at what's happened over the past four years, I'm really happy with my life.
2: Normand spoke to Ali Oshinsky, who reports on the Naugatuck Valley for Connecticut Public Radio. Ali joins me now on Zoom. Allie, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me.
2: You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, uh, Allie, when we think about Connecticut residents who support President Trump, it's a perspective we don't often hear. Uh, You again did a recent story talking with Trump voters in Connecticut's Naugatuck Valley, so the western side of our state. Besides this being your beat, uh, why did you want to highlight these particular uh, voters in this community?
0: Yeah, well, like you said, Lucy, Connecticut is reliably blue. Um, But if you look at the electoral map closely, like the 2016 presidential results, geographically, it's purple. So 55% of Connecticut in total voted for Clinton, but 88 towns went for Trump. And that's over half of our 169 towns. And many of those towns are in the valley. Um, And to clarify for those who don't know, because there's many valleys and many rivers in (laughs) Connecticut, The valley is a region along the Naugatuck River, Um, so it starts around Torrington-Litchfield area and goes all the way south through Waterbury and Naugatuck to Shelton, Derby, and Ansonia. Um, And part of what brings me to Connecticut Public Radio is the Report for America program, which puts journalists um, in areas that local papers and local journalism has dried up over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, So that's why I come to this region and to Connecticut public. And on the topic of news, the folks I spoke to for this story, they cited a variety of sources that they get their news from, uh, definitely heard about Fox News in there, and also distrust of the quote unquote media. So this project was about, you know, getting a reporter into the valley, um, making some connections, building some trust, as well as talking to Connecticut Trump voters.
2: I have to ask, Ali, uh, when you mentioned that some of these voters don't trust the media, how did you get them to talk to you?
0: <laughs> well, you know, it was a variety of sources, some Trump donor lists, um, some people I just started talking to. Uh, you know, I think there's more trust person to person than maybe through email or other ways. So, you know, just a lot of that sort of shoe leather reporting (laughs) as it's called.
2: And so tell me what they told you. Why are they supporting the president uh, this time around again?
0: Yeah, so there was a lot of um, varied reasons. Um, A lot of, I I heard a lot of people saying they liked his outsider status and they felt that career politicians hadn't worked for them in the past. And actually, after the story ran, someone emailed me and asked, you know, I wished I'd heard about policy issues. I wish these voters had talked about it. Um, And I thought, wow, that was suspiciously absent from a lot of the conversations I had, even after pushing some of these voters to say what policies they liked. Um, And so I think one takeaway from that is that part of the reason people like Trump can be based in feelings or political sentiments or identity rather than specific policy conversations although there i should say there was there were some people who shared specifically policy ideas
2: Hmm. That's interesting. We know that pre- the President Trump is one of the most divisive political figures in recent history. One of the reasons is the way he talks about race. Uh, to remind our listeners, uh, he has called Mexicans, quote, rapists. He has refused to denounce white nationalists. And we've seen in this campaign cycle, Allie, he continues to lean into these fears uh, from suburbanites, white suburbanites, about low-income housing coming into the suburbs. So when you talk to these particular Trump voters, in the Naugatuck Valley. Uh, How did they view the president's rhetoric around race and racism?
0: Yeah, well, it's definitely on their minds. Um, A common theme I heard was anxiety around changing demographics. Um, But I'd hope we could hear from some voters. So I brought in some tape. This is Liz Normand, who you heard at the top of the show. She's a nurse in Prospect, and she lectures on nursing. Um, For those who don't know, Prospect is a suburb of Waterbury. So Prospect is 94% white. Nearby Waterbury is 36% Hispanic or Latino and 17% black. And that's data from the Connecticut Data Collaborative. Um, And she started this comment by saying, I don't think we're racist. I think we're ignorant because in small towns like Prospect, we don't see how cities struggle. I'll let her take it from there. Waterbury is, you know, five minutes away. And that's a hard town for me to go to now because there's so many diverse things going on good and bad i'm just kind of i don't feel like i'm part of that community anymore because i'm you know i i kind of believe that every black person is a democrat because they think trump is a racist and that's not true i don't think he's a racist and i should also add that liz did say she believes in the basic idea that black lives matter and was interested to learn more about it um but race and racism in America today came up in every conversation I had with or without my prompting. Um, And I think this is something a lot of Trump voters wanna talk about, Um, but I heard a lot of discomfort with the idea and offense at the idea that America is a racist country or that supporting the president is seen as inherently racist. Um, And Trump's rhetoric I think has really penetrated, uh, especially the rhetoric about racial justice riots or protests this summer. Um, I heard some misinformation about that, too, like the idea that there were more violent than peaceful protests this summer, which we should add is not true. A majority of the protests were peaceful. But I think uh, there's a lot to take away from this. But one easy conclusion I think we can make is that the definition of what racism is really differs from person to person. And so conversations on race sound very different across the state of Connecticut.
2: You're hearing Allie Oshinsky here on Where We Live. She's a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. She covers the Naugatuck Valley. And we're talking about a recent story Ali did about uh, Connecticut residents who supported Trump in 2016 and who plan to do so again uh, tomorrow. So when you talk, you talked to, to these Trump voters about race, but you also brought up uh, COVID, of course. And and how did they view the president's handling the, of the pandemic, Allie? Yeah,
0: also, there was a lot of variation on this one, too. Um, on this answer, there, there were more tentative responses. And I should add that, like, all the folks I talked to had some variation of, I wear a mask, I've gotten tested, shared some conventional wisdom about the virus. I also heard a lot of love for Governor Ned Lamont's response to the virus. Um, so I think the local and the national, you know, there's a difference there, but they're seeing it work in their neighborhood. Um, So you'll hear again from a voter. This is uh, David Nastry. He's a financial advisor in Waterbury. And he shifted some of the doubt to the media. So I'll let him explain.
2: When we have conflicting medical advice, we have conflicting medical advice. It means we don't have an answer yet. So if I lean on one side or the other, I'm not necessarily lying. I might be wrong. And I might believe it hard, but I still might be wrong. It's not the same as, as saying that I'm lying. And so I have gotten to the point where when I hear that in the media, I I take any criticism of the president with a grain of salt.
0: So there you hear him sort of, you know, making some sort of rationale for the president. Um, but also, I should add, almost everyone I spoke to did have some criticism of the president's behavior, demeanor, or language. Um, but they obviously do like some or a lot of things about Trump. So not to hear anything positive about him in the media actually breaks their trust with the media because they like this guy. Um, And I think a lot of this translates into wanting to defend the president. So back on the topic of COVID, I heard a lot of praise for Trump's decision to close down travel from China early on. Um, A lot of praise for that, but not so much talk of recent events. And I also heard how Trump's rhetoric, blaming China for the spread of the coronavirus really stuck with a lot of supporters. but COVID is like a really hard issue for all of us, right? And, and at least for the voters I spoke to, it was too. Um, it's impacted all of our lives, some of them in really traumatic and terrible ways. Uh, and like you heard Liz say at the top, what she called voting with your heart might mean a vote for Biden. And she said that she expects some people to do that. Um, but at least for the folks I spoke to the, for this story, they were all solidly in support of Trump and they're all hoping for another four years.
2: I'm curious, Allie. after your story aired, what was the response from listeners uh, to what they heard? Um,
0: I didn't get a lot of emails in response, but I think um, as I was reporting this story, uh, I was really struck by what different media consumption worlds um, I was living in compared to the folks I was speaking with Um and what is seen as true and what is seen as more flexibly true. Um, And the whole process for me has really been eye-opening, but I'm I'm hoping to hear more from people. And if anyone has thoughts on it and wants to share, feel free to send me an email.
2: Now we know election day is tomorrow. Allie, will you be back in the Naugatuck Valley and where?
0: Oh yeah, I will be (laughs) uh, all throughout the Valley tomorrow. I'll be in Torrington and Waterbury checking in on the polls there, talking more about how the vote is happening uh, with absentee and lines at the polls and all that. Um, And then we will be, uh, host uh, you and John will be doing a broadcast and you'll see me a bit on that.
2: Nice. That's right. So I will be uh, hosting a show with uh, John Henry Smith of Connecticut Public Radio, our local ATC host, as we talk with Allie and some other Connecticut Public Radio reporters, as well as Hearst Connecticut reporters. That's being uh, that, that program will start tomorrow night at six on CPTV. You can hear it on Connecticut Public Radio and, of course, streaming at ctpublic.org. Allie, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me, Lucy. It was fun.
2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Coming up, no-excuse absentee ballots in a pandemic have led to a lot of discussions about how to change the ways we vote. In Massachusetts, voters will decide whether their state should allow ranked choice voting. We'll hear more about that after the break. You can join us, too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. No matter the outcome of this presidential election, many of us want to see changes to how we vote each election. Connecticut doesn't have early voting like other states. Also, could no-excuse absentee ballots be expanded here Beyond the pandemic, those are some of the questions being asked. How about ranked choice voting? Ranked choice voting is something that's been talked about in our state. Our neighbor, Massachusetts, has a ballot question before residents tomorrow that could change the way they vote. Are you watching to see if ranked choice voting happens in Massachusetts? Do you want this type of voting in our state? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me now on Zoom is Matt Stout. He's politics reporter for the Boston Globe. Matt, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Uh, We know ranked choice voting is also referred to as instant runoff. So tell us how it works.
1: Yeah, ranked choice voting, at least on the front end, uh, works very much as it sounds. Uh, If you have, say, three, four, or more candidates on the ballot, uh, voters get the opportunity to, instead of just picking one, ranking their preferences, Um, you know, assigning candidate A their first vote, candidate C their second vote, and candidate B their third vote. Um, And then from there, uh, it's slightly more complex. Um, When the when essentially election officials are tabulating the votes um if no one reaches 50 percent uh because the system is sort of designed to ensure that you have someone with uh, a majority who wins the candidate that receives the fewest amount of votes in that first round uh is essentially eliminated and then their voters are redistributed to the remaining candidates uh, based upon their second choice. And then it's again, retabulated to determine whether someone has 50% and sort of that process, uh, depending on how many candidates there are, um, continues until someone has, um, you know, 50% plus one, if you will, uh, to, to be the winner. Um, and that's, uh, generally, uh, how it works. Um, although, you know, there could be different forms of ranked choice voting, but that's essentially what is on the ballot here, uh, in Massachusetts.
2: I understand cities around our country have had ranked choice voting for some time, including, I believe, Cambridge. So I'm just curious, you know, why is this before uh, Massachusetts voters in a ballot question? Were there recent races that advocates point to about why this is needed?
1: Yeah, in Massachusetts, at least the the, the best examples, for lack of a better term, that advocates point to is we've had a series of democratic primaries for congress in recent years in which you have you know five nine ten candidates running uh and and any time every single time uh the winner of that primary is getting 22 23 percent of the vote um there was a a, a special race in 2013 where the winner uh now representative Catherine clark got a little over 30 percent of the vote and it's it that that has helped sort of fuel the the calls for changing our system because especially in massachusetts where democrats hold every single seat in congress and in in our u.s senate uh delegation um essentially those democratic primaries are the ones that are ultimately deciding who is in congress uh so there there's frustration where you know we here in massachusetts uh south of boston we had a congressional race just this past fall where there was nine candidates on the ballot uh, and the winner won with uh, just about 23%. And, you know, to, to advocates are pushing for ranked choice, uh, the feeling is that our current system, you may not get a candidate that reflects what the majority of voters want when you're having a winner, literally with a, the sliver uh, of the electorate, essentially winning office.
2: When we think about our current system, Matt, uh, there's also the idea of spoilers uh, and that exists today. But with ranked choice voting, that that idea could be eliminated.
1: That, that's the argument where if you have, say, four candidates in a race, you have a, a Democrat or Republican and, and two independents, um, whether they're leaning more conservative or more liberal. The, the argument for ranked choice vote is if you as a voter uh, like one of those third-party candidates better, um, you're, you're allowed to rank them first. And if they have a, a low chance of winning, you could still rank, say, the Republican or the Democrat second. And if one, if your first choice is eliminated because no one gets 50%, then your, your vote is reallocated to your second choice. And it, it's sort of this idea that you're not um, throwing your vote away Uh, or at least, you know, you, you could sort of vote with your heart, uh, and and still have an impact on the final, uh, outcome of the race. I mean, that, that is one of the the main arguments for it. Um, in, you know, that was, that's the argument here in Massachusetts. And that was one of the main arguments when it was adopted in Maine, uh, at least for, for the first time in 2016.
2: You're hearing Matt Stout here on where we live. He's politics reporter for the Boston Globe. As we learn more about the ballot question before Massachusetts voters tomorrow, uh, whether to support ranked choice voting. If you have a question, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So Matt, tell me more about what polls have shown in terms of Massachusetts uh, voters. Is this something that uh, they're supporting And, and who's opposed?
1: Yeah, there the, there's hasn't been a ton of polling. There was one poll in August, which essentially showed the electorate split, uh, with a lot of people undecided. Uh, there was a recent, there was two recent polls, uh, that showed at uh, least support for ranked choice voting uh, slightly ahead of uh, you know those who said they were were going to vote against it. Um, but it's it's largely close to, or very close to the margin of error. So it sort of feels like there is a. um not really sure how it's going to go tomorrow. Uh, and In terms of opponents here, uh, the Massachusetts Republican Party has come out against it. Um, the governor, uh, Charlie Baker, who is a moderate Republican, uh, has also said that he is not going to vote for it. And there is a, a formal committee that has been formed to oppose the ballot question, um, essentially starting by uh, some Republicans up here in Westford, Mass., although they have not raised the amount of money or have the visibility of the committee that's, that's pushing the ballot question so it's largely formed uh, to a certain degree along ide- ideological lines where you have Republicans and, and more conservative um, people on the spectrum against it. And then uh, for it, uh, Democrats, there are, there are some prominent Republicans who are supporting it, uh, such as former Governor Bill Weld here. Um, you know, the Massachusetts Libertarian Party, Democratic Party and the Green Rainbow Party uh, have all endorsed it. Um, so uh, there, there is uh, support for it kind of goes across the, the political spectrum. But, you know, essentially opposition is rooted in, in more the the Republican end of it.
2: You mentioned Governor Baker. I believe uh, he won with 48 percent of the vote. Uh,
1: that is correct. And <laughs> one of the closest elections uh, we've, had, we've had in decades back in 2014.
2: And so if ranked choice voting existed in Massachusetts, that would be an example of of a race where um you know, it could change uh, depending on uh, how your voters are ranking uh, their candidates.
1: Yeah, uh, th- that would that that race, as well as the first race he ran in in 2010, where he lost to Governor Deval Patrick, and you had uh, essentially the the state treasurer there, Tim Cahill, who got a pretty substantial, I want to say, eight or nine percent of the vote. Um, and and you know, so that was also a race where you know, ranked choice voting could come into play. Um, so there, there is the, the gubernatorial races that, that sort of fall into that, that category for sure.
2: Now, you mentioned Maine. So let's talk about how ranked choice voting uh, has been going in Maine. You wrote a long story looking at uh, the promises advocates in Maine said ranked choice voting would bring. So how has it worked in Maine? Have they seen uh, things like uh, partisanship decreasing or the fact that um, how money goes into campaigns changing?
1: It depends on the race. Uh, one of the first races or essentially the first major race that ranked choice voting was applied to was their uh, gubernatorial primary, democratic primary in 2018. And within that race, you had two Democrats that essentially ran together. They, they appeared in a campaign ad, urged their supporters to, you know, rank one of them first and the other one second. So you have this sort of novel level of civility, which advocates for ranked choice voting says it encourages. Uh, and then you look at some of the other high-profile races, and it sort of feels like ranked-choice voting hasn't really affected what we've seen out of campaigns. They had a uh, congressional race in 2018 in the second district there, uh, as well as a U.S. Senate race this year. And you're seeing, um, you know, almost records amount uh, um, amounts of money flowing in from outside the state for advertising. A lot of it negative, um, you know, very Sort of sometimes nasty rhetoric uh, between the candidates, uh, and so even though ranked choice voting says you know it could promote civility, um, it, it you know it encourages or at least uh, incentivizes candidates to appeal to a broader base um, of supporters. You know you have a congressional race which which helped decide sort of which party controlled the House in 2018. You have a Senate race that is part of the same discussion of who will control the Senate after this election. So those forces of people from outside the state and just, you know, a lot of money flowing into it to help influence the decision, uh, sort of overwhelm, if you will, the, the the potential benefits that ranked choice voting uh, have. So it, it, it's been a, a mixed bag. And, and frankly, this is, even though it was first adopted in 2016, this is only the second election cycle that it's been used. So, you know, talking to political science in Maine, it, you know, they say it's sort of too early to judge whether this has been, you know, a full, the full out success that, that, that people say it could be um, or, or if it hasn't lived up to it. It's sort of a, an experiment still in process, if you will. Mm.
2: Now, we know Maine is very different from Massachusetts. Uh, in Maine, ranked choice voting is being used in the presidential election. But that's not something that would be the case in mass if the ballot question passes.
1: Correct. Uh, Maine is the first state to use ranked choice voting this year in their presidential election Uh, in Massachusetts. It'd be used for our statewide offices, you know, governor, attorney general, our legislative races, our congressional races, uh, both for primary and as well as general elections. But municipal elections and presidential elections are excluded from that. So, uh, yeah, there is a pretty clear distinction in the uh, proposal here of, of what it would actually be used for.
2: When we started talking, you mentioned uh, that uh, people often uh, can be confused about ranked choice voting. But as there's been more awareness to this ballot question, uh, do you think that a lot of voters understand it and are embracing embracing this kind of change, uh, Matt?
1: It's hard to say if there's a full embrace, I mean, largely because the polling has been so split. I think that the general concept of ranking your choices is is pretty easy for people to grasp. I, I think there is sort of this confusion or at least questions of well once I put my vote in what happens next? there is that added layer of complexity that comes with tabulating and counting votes um, for, a, for a ranked choice vote uh, a ranked choice election. So I think for some people you know even I've talked to people in Maine who are you know two election cycles into it and there's still sort of this question of well what happens if I don't rank everyone? Do I have to rank someone, uh, be, you know, beyond my first choice? So there's there's still a, a feeling of trying to feel it out, and, and even in, in Cambridge where they've used a former ranked choice voting for 80 years, mm. there's still some people that are trying to grasp of well, what happens next after I spit my vote in? So I that to a certain degree. Um, Still exists and, and, and will exist, and yeah, it's going to take a lot of voter education should this pass to let people know sort of the process. Um, but I think just naturally, you know, we're, we're so attuned to you, know, you cast a vote, they count them up, whoever has the most uh wins, it, it is very simple and, and something we understand because we've been doing it for you know centuries. Um, it, it does take a little more of sort of wrapping your head around or at least just learning about um, how a ranked choice voting election works because the process of You know, here are three choices, uh, put one, two or three or or one and two, whatever you prefer. People get that. I mean, we we, we do that with a lot of things in our lives. It's sort of the the back end of it, of what's happening when they're actually deciding or at least figuring out who won. That I think people are, are, you know, a lot of people are, are trying to grasp or learn about.
2: Now, I've been talking with you about ballot question number two before Massachusetts voters again, whether they support ranked choice voting. But before we end, I have to ask you about the the ballot question number one, because we've done (laughs) uh, here on Where We Live a whole show about right to repair. And that's before voters tomorrow. Can you briefly tell tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so the right to repair ballot question here is um, essentially a a return, if you will, to what Massachusetts voters decided on uh, now eight years ago. Um, there we, at that time, um, for our first right to repair question, um, essentially we, you know, Massachusetts voters, uh, allowed, uh, for the first time and, it, and sort of set a precedent across the country, um, of allowing independent shops, uh, the ability to plug into cars, if you will, and be able to access, uh, diagnostic codes and other information they would need for repairs. Uh, essentially it was pitched as, well, you're giving people more options because they're, they're not limited to only going to a dealership that would have access to this type of mechanical data. With this one, um, it's, it's more complicated because it's al- it would allow access to what is called telematics, which is the wireless data that's currently transmitted from a lot of our cars, especially the newer models, um, back to the manufacturers um, to which their their dealerships and where they repair cars also have access. Um, so it's, it's opened up this whole discussion debate about um you know cybersecurity and security of of our data of what what are what are our cars spitting out every single day and and who could see it um you know and with this ballot question it would call for the creation of uh, essentially an app that would allow the owner of the car to access that data and to give say an independent shop uh access to it as well um but you know, there's questions of well, what would this app look like? Um, the the ballot proposal itself isn't specific in some ways, sort of leaving that to be decided within the industry. But it, it's it's created this what is now the the most expensive ballot question we've had in Massachusetts, where you essentially have automakers that are pouring millions of dollars into defeating the question, and um, sort of aftermarket uh, parts dealers, you know, the Auto Zones of the world. Um, that are pouring, you know, equal amounts of money into, you know, passing it. So yeah, it's become uh, as much of a question of, well, you know, where, you should have a right to choose where you want to have your car fixed into this very complicated how secure is your data uh, and essentially what is a, 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 you know, automobile industry war playing out on the ballot here.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, we'll be definitely watching that one, Matt. Matt Stout again as politics reporter for the Boston Globe, talking about a couple of ballot questions before Massachusetts voters, uh, both issues, something that people here in Connecticut are also interested in. Matt, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. Anytime.
2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, we're going to shift away from talking about elections and ballot questions to focus on your health, specifically to ask you, have you gotten your flu shot yet? We'll hear from an infectious disease expert about why it's important now more than ever. You can join us too. find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on connecticut public radio i'm lucy nalbathanchel election day is almost here on the next where we live connecticut secretary of the state denise merrill joins us to talk about how voting is going across our state will you vote in person or is this your first time voting we want to hear from you that conversation tomorrow now have you gotten your flu shot health professionals have recommended americans get a flu shot to avoid a potential twin-demic As COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations rise in Connecticut, Governor Ned Lamont had this sobering news last week.
1: I look at it as uh, the second wave.
2: Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Jessica Abrantes-Figueredo, Chief of Infectious Disease at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford. Dr. Abrantes, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Now, uh, you know, we have COVID-19 cases rising, hospitalizations increasing in our state. We just heard uh, Governor Lamont uh, telling residents uh, late last week that we are seeing the start of the second wave of this pandemic. This is also the time of year when we hear that we should be getting our flu shot. Uh, You know, you're you're a doctor. What are you hearing uh, from your patients? Are people taking this seriously?
3: So I I think people are actually taking this serious. Uh, We're seeing a lot of our patients requesting flu shots. We're obviously recommending the flu shots this year. I recommend the flu shots every year. But this of all years is so important to to make sure that we can cut back on, you know, any respiratory virus, especially since we are clearly in the midst of our pandemic and clearly um, seeing the next surge.
2: When we think about a surge, we we know that in the pandemic, uh, when we had a peak uh, in the late spring in Connecticut, uh, the overcapacity of hospital systems is a concern. And so is that something that you're worried about too, that with uh, seasonal flu, um, if uh, it spikes, you're going to see uh, shortages of beds and also equipment for people who are sick with these respiratory illnesses?
3: Absolutely, that's definitely a concern that um, all physicians and uh, all of our hospital administration has, and we are closely looking at all of those things and the numbers. And as much as we want to, yes, protect our healthcare workers, you know, decrease hospital capacity so that we're not overwhelmed, this is really for the community to prevent infection, prevent severe illness where they then require hospitalization or even an ICU stay.
2: You can join our conversation as we talk about uh, getting your flu shot uh, in a pandemic. The number eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. If you have a question about the flu vaccine or just uh, in general about uh, you know whether it's uh, safe to head to your doctor's office uh, in this pandemic, is that something that you're seeing from your patients, Dr. Brontes? Are people uh, you know, more willing uh, to go and get regular checkups in a pandemic?
3: So I, I think it's it's definitely that people have been fearful. I think we are seeing less of that fear now, um, only because we know so much more, although we're still learning about COVID-19. Our hospitals are well-equipped, clinic staff as well, and we're taking all of the safety measures too for both patients and um, providers. So providers are wearing masks, even eyewear protection, and then we have all patients as well wearing masks too so that each is protecting each other. <laughs>
2: When we think about the flu shot in years past, oftentimes people wonder how effective the the vaccine is. And so I'm wondering, what are we hearing of, about of this particular vaccine uh, for these strains uh, this upcoming season, Dr. Brontes?
3: Sure. So typically, it's difficult to project the effectiveness. We try to look at Um, you know, those who are making the vaccines at prior years. And sometimes it's difficult to predict. But what we do know is that even in years where we have very low effectiveness, it actually still helps and works to prevent, you know, people from needing to go to the doctor, people from having to be hospitalized for flu, um, or even deaths as well, too. So even if it's a low effective vaccine, it can still do so much good if we have, you know a sufficient amount of the population getting vaccinated and that's key
2: well, when we think about effectiveness too we often look to to flu seasons in other parts of the world including the southern hemisphere uh, what are we hearing in terms of the flu season
3: so the southern hemisphere is actually seeing a very you know low or tame flu season um and yet with many of them still doing a lot of testing so it goes to show that likely what we're doing for COVID-19 is helping to prevent the influenza um, season being a harsh one. That being said, we can't necessarily just guess or estimate that we are gonna see the exact same thing that the Southern hemisphere has experienced. Um, You know, we're seeing our cases in COVID rise and that's mainly because it's much more contagious and when we're comparing it to influenza. So, you know, again, hopefully we can see that type of similar season. But again, it depends on us as healthcare workers, our community to being vaccinated to continue all these strategies for COVID-19 like wearing masks, keeping our distance, um, and washing our hands.
2: You know, anecdotally, I have uh, two children in a hybrid uh, school schedule, so they're in school just a couple times a week, but they have to wear a mask, there's constant uh, hand washing and, and hand sanitizing, and I have to say, Dr. Brontes, for uh, November 2nd, neither of my children has had a cold yet, that must be a good thing when we think about some of the preventative measures for in this pandemic, uh, having the masks on, keeping distance from others.
3: Absolutely. Um, I I'll say it the same thing too. Both of my kids are actually ended up being in full in person. I have a you know someone in daycare, my daughter and my son in in person school as a first grader, and it that just goes to show, it's, you know, our our strategies are working. Um, my children also haven't had colds, coughs, and in school too, they've been doing such a wonderful job in encouraging hand washing, um, keeping their masks on too, and trying to do other things with the children like going outside when they can, so that we can prevent the spread within school systems.
2: You're hearing Dr. Jessica Abrantes-Figueredo, Chief of Infectious Disease at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, as we talk about uh, the twin demics that health officials are worried about, the fact that we're in a pandemic for COVID-19, and it's also the start of flu season. If you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Richard's calling in from Woodbury. Richard, what's your question? Um, I'm 75 years old, and when I went in to uh, get my flu shot, I didn't realize uh, at the time that there was a extreme flu shot they recommended for seniors. My doctor didn't tell me. I didn't know to ask. I got the regular flu shot, and some weeks later, I come to find out there is that stronger uh, flu shot. And so I'm wondering at this point, do I just have to uh, buy with the regular flu? shot or at a certain time, can I go back in for,
1: you know, that extra strength flu shot when it's available or a second regular flu shot?
2: Good question, Richard. What can you tell him, Dr. Abrantes? Sure. Um, so- I
3: was going to say that that is a great question. So there are recommendations that for folks who are over the age of 65, they can actually consider getting the higher dose flu shot. Um, that being said, it's, you know, not an absolute that you have to get um, the higher dose. I would say that you've done a great job in going to get the flu shot. And unfortunately, sometimes maybe clinics or certain areas may not have access to the higher dose. And really, for, for me for most ID physicians, they would say any flu shot is better than no flu shot. Um, since you've already gotten the flu shot, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you go and get the higher dose, Um, But again, it is one of the recommendations that we can do. But that being said, folks who are over 65 can also still get the kind of quote unquote regular flu shot as well.
2: I'm glad Richard called in because I saw reports uh, from Hearst, Connecticut, uh, Dr. Brontes, uh, Mick Boldick, an epidemiologist and vaccine coordinator for the State Department of Public Health, uh, talking about this high dose vaccine for Americans over the age of 65. Um, it's it's not uh, easy to, to get. People are having a hard time finding it. And so I'm just wondering, again, uh, just to reiterate, if they can't get the high dose vaccine if they're over 65, you're saying that the regular uh, flu shot. Uh, should should be taken in that situation
3: absolutely so again it's a recommendation but just like you mentioned there may be times where it's difficult to get it so instead of waiting um, especially now that we're already in November typically we say October is a great time to get the flu shot and now that we're in November definitely a good time to get the flu shot and not necessarily wait so getting the regular flu shot um, is also uh, a good good idea
2: Again, you can join us if you have a question about, about the flu shot at 888 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at where we live. Uh, we know that in the pandemic, uh, COVID-19, the elderly are most at risk. But when we think about the flu, who's most at risk of, of getting this respiratory illness, Dr. Brontes, and, and having complications from it?
3: So it's similar and there are similar crossovers too. So usually with the flu, however, we see the very young, although I'm not a pediatric infectious disease doctor, but the very young and also um, the much older population too. So kind of those two extremes, we don't see that necessarily with COVID-19 um, with the younger children, although certainly children can also get infected. And similar things too with regards to people who may have underlying lung disorders, so COPD or breathing issues, um, as well as cardiac um conditions too. Um, So both kind of, they're similar, obviously, but also different, um, but both with similar uh, risk factors.
2: Deborah from Watertown wants to know about the pneumonia shot. Uh, She said it just became eligible. Does this provide any additional protections from COVID-19, Dr. Brontes?
3: Good question. So it does not provide additional. effectiveness or, you know, for COVID-19. However, um, sometimes we do see folks who have COVID-19 go on to develop, you know, bacterial infections. And regardless, even if this was pre-pandemic, I would definitely say as well, if you do qualify for the pneumonia vaccine um, to getting vaccinated, as that too is important to prevent bacterial pneumonias.
2: Are you worried about communities of color? We know that COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted them. When we think about uh, people of color in our country, historically, they have chronic health conditions. Does that put them at a higher risk if they get the flu, Dr. Brontes?
3: Absolutely. Something very similar. And yes, they've unfortunately been disproportionately affected by the virus. Um, It's something that we talk about as well as you know, now that we're mentioning the flu vaccine, and even as we start to consider the COVID vaccine as well, to making sure that they have the access to those things, flu clinics, for example, to get vaccinated um, so that we can, again, help to prevent um, infection hospitalizations in that community that has been much more greatly affected.
2: When we think about getting the flu shot, we're, we're thinking about our individual health and the health of our family members. But this also, there's also this idea that when you get the flu shot, you're helping protect your community.
3: Absolutely. I think the biggest message I could give for, you know, what we're going through with the pandemic, COVID-19, it's, it's not just about personal, but, you know, what you do to help protect yourself is actually helping the community as well and the, the spread. The same thing with the vaccines there are some people that may not be able to get the flu vaccine so they depend on other folks around them to be vaccinated
2: we talked about efficacy a little bit earlier can we talk about some misconceptions about the flu shot dr brontes you laid out that it's important to get the flu shot because uh, even if you were to get a particular strain of flu it it may not be as serious as if no flu shot at all but there is still a belief out there that the flu shot causes the flu what can you tell our listeners
3: sure so in in short really the flu shot does not cause um the flu there are different strains and the other thing too that we typically see is that there's so many circulating uh, respiratory viruses so that's what people can sometimes see as well after they get the flu vaccine and it's just a coincidence and well, timing um, the other thing is that a lot of times people may have a react not a true reaction but kind of uh, feeling a little down uh, under the weather that you know, arm ache that people can feel as well, a little feverish. And that's really not them getting sick. That's actually their body reacting to the flu vaccine and their immune system boosting so that they can protect themselves against the flu. And you are right that um, even though folks can certainly, unfortunately, get the flu, even with the flu vaccine, typically what we see is a much more milder disease, Um, folks not having to be hospitalized, and, you know, which is much better than having to be hospitalized, consideration for you know, ICU stays, etc. So very important um, that people know that the flu shot does not cause the flu. Mm.
2: There have been some uh, headlines recently, Dr. Bronte, citing preliminary research on the possibility that getting the flu shot might reduce a person's likelihood of contracting COVID. Again, this research is in the very early stages. What's your reaction to that?
3: So definitely I've heard of those things and very in the early stages, unfortunately, given that they're two separate viruses, um, you know, it's something that uh, I don't think we can, you know, absolutely say, Oh, well you're going to get the flu shot and you can have some prevention in COVID-19 only because a lot of times these, these things that we end up saying, it may put a false sense of security into folks, um, Mm -hmm. but definitely nothing that's been confirmed. Um, And again, not something that I would then tell people that they don't have to worry about COVID-19. So again, back to the basics of hand-washing, wearing a mask, and keeping our distance to help prevent the spread.
2: Mary's calling in to where we live. Mary, what's your question? Yeah, my question is, a friend of mine got the uh, high-dose senior shot a month ago. She ended up eight hours later with a lot of dizziness. And then eventually when she went to sleep, she woke up and she was numb from her waist down. I went to get the shot. Um, to My doctor's office, I've got it the last four years, no problem. And I asked him about it. And he said, well, it's a very rare syndrome. I'd like to know the name of that syndrome. But he said, I've had two people who come to my office here who got the shot who had the same reaction. So I'm a little scared concerned about getting
3: it to be quite honest with you and I'm thinking should I just get the regular low dose one or what what have they heard about this? Sure so there are and I'm just assuming because I I don't know the full story but um, there are reactions that people can get to any vaccine just like we can get any reactions to medications. Um, What it sounds like what they're referring to is something we call Guillain-Barre syndrome. And um, what's interesting is that both the flu vaccine can cause it, although it's extremely rare, um, and actually also influenza. So having the flu, the infection can actually cause this as well. So in you know my career, I've definitely actually seen both happen, although very, very, very few numbers, but um, it's a risk benefit that you know if you've done fine and this is why folks always get questioned before they get the flu shot that if they've had any bad reaction including Guillain-Barre syndrome because then that has to be a discussion between you and um, your physician so unfortunately when you know somebody that's had Guillain-Barre syndrome it makes things that much more scary Um, but again the numbers are extremely extremely rare Um, And it would still be safe and, you know, needed to get the flu vaccine so that we can prevent um, influenza, the hospitalizations, the deaths that we do see from flu.
2: And for uh, Mary's uh, question, Dr. Brontes, if she's still a little hesitant to get that high dose flu shot for people over 65, you would recommend she get the regular one just to be safe?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. If it, again, it, it, these always come down to conversations between patient and physician. And if you were to feel uncomfortable, and you've done just fine with the, you know, regular dose, then I would say absolutely, go ahead and get yourself the regular dose flu vaccine.
2: Uh, Chris called in from Wethersfield and wanted to know, is there a price difference between these two flu shot strengths, Dr. Brontes?
3: That's a good question. And I'm not sure I know the answer. (laughs) Typically, though, um, you know, the flu shot is covered by most insurances. um, And I know a lot of pharmacies and big retailers also try to promote getting the flu shot for very minimum for folks who don't have um, insurance. So I'm not sure that I can answer that question completely.
2: Uh, Just to end, Dr. Brontes, we heard Governor Lamont talking about the start of the second wave for COVID-19. As an infectious disease uh, doctor at St. Francis, uh, what are your concerns uh, moving into the next couple of months?
3: I think the biggest concern is to see what we saw before with large, um, our hospital being really at capacity and it really overwhelming the healthcare system. And not only that, all of the unfortunate illnesses that we saw, the impact that it has on patients and obviously families as well. Um, So I I can't stress enough that we, this is not just about healthcare workers or one community, this needs to be all communities really coming together. Um, A lot of people are coming up with slogans, you know, ones that I've heard about the three W's, so wear your mask, watch your distance wash your hands. These are things that are are so important and especially as we go into the holidays. Thanksgiving is coming up, Christmas, Hanukkah and really what we've been seeing driving some of the infections is actually just small family gatherings. People opening up their homes to you know extended family and friends and just remembering all of these things because so many infections can be asymptomatic and then unfortunately leading to spread among people that are much more vulnerable. So it's such an important thing as we go into mm-hmm. to this next surge. Well,
2: Dr. Jessica Abrantes-Figueredo, Chief of Infectious Disease at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, part of Trinity Health of New England. Thanks for your time today.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Bascoff. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, tomorrow we want to hear about your voting experience.